Welcome to Miriosity, a podcast discussing Christianity for the merely curious. I'm Trevor Cook, and I'm joined today by my friend and Miriosity's co-founder, Andrew Bass. Andrew is a master's candidate at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he works as a youth minister in the Anglican Church of North America. And I'm very excited to say that he is also now a married man. Uh, very happy to have attended your wedding recently, Andrew, and congratulations. I'm going to turn it over to you to get us started on today's subject, because uh, it's something that I know very little about uh, coming from my own tradition, um, but I uh, am excited to hear about apostolic succession. Sure. Thanks, Trevor. Again, as always, wonderful introduction. <laughs> I appreciate it. And yes, I did get married recently. Very excited about that. Um, it's been really awesome just getting to jump into that um, with my wife, our new life together. So today we are talking about the doctrine of apostolic succession. For those of you that have been following us now the last uh, few weeks with a few um, with a few back roads we've taken for some bonus content, we've just been working our way through the first seven ecumenical councils. Uh, these are the councils of what is often referred to as the undivided church, which we're learning now uh, was still I- divided <laughs> even at its earlier stages, but... Uh, we, we still had for this period up until really the Great Schism in 1054, this period of uh, really remarkable unity of Christians where there was a virtual um, unanimous church, a very identifiable majority of Christians that were working together. And during this time of the undivided church, we had these seven councils. And while there's a lot of stuff that these councils taught and they jumped in a lot of different directions and some traditions... Uh, don't embrace all of them, and some traditions embrace parts of some of them. Uh, They all taught us something about who Christ is, and virtually all of Christianity, all of Christendom, is under agreement in the teachings and distinctions of the Trinity, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, that are laid out in these councils. So, one of the things that was a big part of these councils, an idea that uh, really began to be strong as they were happening, is the idea of apostolic succession. So one thing that we've talked about is how it was bishops that were meeting at these councils, right? It wasn't just like the best theologians, the best scholars. I know in our world today there uh, is usually a difference between a theology scholar and a pastor or a priest or a deacon. Not that Clergy don't uh, jump into the academic and theological realm, but they're not usually the ones writing these books and teaching at the universities. Um, And so for us today, you would think that some of the, if we were to have a council, then we would want to invite some of these academics. Uh, But in the ancient world, that wouldn't work because they believed that the teaching of the apostles, the true, uh, pure, and unadulterated faith Uh, delivered by Christ into the apostles and passed down, was passed down through a succession of bishops. So all of the twelve apostles, uh, they served as bishops, and they ordained priests who ordained priests who ordained priests, but also they ordained bishops who ordained bishops who ordained bishops. And it was the bishop's responsibility through every generation to protect that faith once delivered, as we read in Jude 3. 
So I will read that and then, Trevor, I think I'll pass it back to you. But in Jude 3, verse 3, we read, Beloved, although I was eager to write about you, uh, about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing that you contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And this idea of apostolic succession is... um, a very early and one of the most major interpretations of how that's supposed to be done. We're protecting the faith once delivered by the apostles and the early church, especially those participating in these councils, believed that the Holy Spirit was uniquely working through the succession of bishops in each generation to make that happen. Thanks, Andrew. That was an excellent introduction. Um, I, I think that this is a concept that isn't as you know widely talked about in the Protestant church and like faith today but it is something that uh was becoming very uh important and more central within our discussion of ecumenical councils beforehand um and i think you did a great way of tying that in because while we are you know pivoting a bit from our our usual subject matter uh we are kind of i think filling in some gaps here because last time when we discussed the council of ephesus we started to see these you know successors to Uh, various apostles where they started churches in specific locations and while this is very geographically focused it also has a very important apostolic succession based authority Um, and that is why these bishops are the key players and uh, important decision makers in these uh, councils that we are you know talking about afterwards and having more of a idea of the origin of this concept is going to be very important i think going forward as we begin to deal with more uh complex uh issues in the future councils uh, as we move away from the christological uh points of view into more of the schema- uh, schismatic uh <laughs> issues as you said um but it's awesome that like there is a kind of way to trace this back uh, and see exactly why this point of view was so different in comparison to what ours is today, that there wasn't really a division between practicing bishops and academics within theology that we tend to have today, uh, but that there was more of a centralized idea of authority being part of the passing down of those lessons, that there is you know, a, a teacher-student uh, relationship that's required both for a passing down of the ideas uh, and beliefs, but also of the Holy Spirit and the way that it works through those beliefs and their um, and the lessons that are being taught. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I think that's a really interesting kind of viewpoint that isn't as clearly, you know, part of our day to day lives now. <laughs> Uh, especially when you are, you know, in seminary, I'm sure that you have dealt with some of that, but maybe it's not always as, as crystal clear as uh, it was when uh, the ecumenical councils were held and everyone came in and announced who exactly they're, you know, representing. I mean, we talked about the, the sort of proclamation of the Bishop of Rome last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I think this is interesting, you know, hearing, hearing about Jude is this really where apostolic succession comes from or what is the actual origin of this concept uh, that we have today? Yeah. So where, where should I start? I know I sound like 
a broken record saying it, it depends on who you ask. And I'm sure that you were expecting me to go to that. Isn't that most things, though? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. It, and it, it, so it does. It depends on who you ask when you're, when you're coming up with uh, and trying to address where does this idea come from of apostolic succession. And I think the fairest answer is yes. It definitely comes uh, here from this passage in Jude. And we see a lot of, of Paul's writings, too, right? The, um, really our go-to apostle for what was going on in the early church and how the church should function. And we see Paul talking uh, to Timothy a lot, his protege, and uh, that's really where we get some of the best biblical examples of what it looks like to pass on the teaching to the next generation right there in Scripture with Paul awaiting, you know, his uh, execution and writing to the young guy, Timothy, um, and writing to Epaphroditus. And and so what what we see is uh, that tradition just being continued. Okay, the faith is supposed to be uh, defended, and there is this deposit of faith uh, that is the truth, that is the true teaching of the church, and it is done. Uh, all of that revelation is done, and so now that needs to be protected through the generations. And that is something that is believed even by uh, Roman Catholics. I'd have to go back and, and read about Orthodox Christians, but I'm sure it's the same. While there can be development of doctrine and clarifications, and that's what uh, these traditions believe the councils are for, uh, the actual deposit of faith, that revelation is done. Uh, that, that concluded with the apostles and Christ's ministry. And so, yeah, I think that's the, where that idea comes from. And now what's different is the nuances between those ideas. Because whether you're talking to a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox or a magisterial Protestant, right, like an actual traditional Protestant, um, especially part of one of those major traditions of the 16th century, like Luth Lutherans, uh, Presbyterians, Anglicans, they believe in apostolic succession too, but they would have a very different definition of what that is. Uh, but at its core, it's simply just the idea of the faith being protected through generations. Excellent. No, so then what we're dealing with here um, comes mainly from Paul's letters in the gospel, or sorry, in the New Testament, that we're, we're, what we're seeing is that, you know, the epistles of Paul are documenting kind of how this transference of, you know, of faith, of the, the basis or foundation of faith uh, goes from him to what we see as some of the earliest bishops like Timothy. Right. Is that, is that exactly what you're saying or my, my uh, mis misinterpreting? That? No, you're not, you're not misinterpreting it. And that, that's just where it gets tricky. It is just passing down the faith. Um, and a very early in the church, it came to be tied to the bishops of uh, some would even argue like that's what was instituted by Christ and the apostles themselves to pass it down through bishops. And uh, that's, that's pretty much, yeah, very, very early on. The idea of preserving and protecting the faith um, orally and through the written word uh, goes all the way back to the apostles. Excellent. Well, then my next question about this is kind of the nature of the succession. Because, again, if we're talking about the passing down of faith, this is not what most people think of when they hear succession. If it's not, you know, the TV series about, you know, the corporate empire going <laughs> to some billionaire's children. You know, we're, we're, we're to think of like kings, kings to princes or princesses over time uh, based on whatever line of order that is determined by that uh, country's rule. 
Um, and in this case, apostolic succession doesn't work like that because the person who succeeds you doesn't receive this authority after you die, right? Yeah. <laughs> this authority kind of is just with them upon their ordination. Mm-hmm. Isn't that true? <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. So that, yeah, that is how that um, kind of power, how, <laughs> how the torch would be handed down is through ordination. So um, especially if you're taking the traditional view of apostolic succession of bishops, uh, it's not just the teaching that's preserved, but it's the teaching preserved through the priesthood, through the line of the episcopate. So you, you don't become, as a bishop or a priest, you don't become a part of the line of apostolic succession to the apostles until you have hands laid on you and you are ordained as a priest and or bishop. And then when, when you know, all bishops are priests, not all priests are bishops, when you do become a bishop, Lord willing, then you enter fully into uh, maybe the, for lack of a better term, the legislative branch of apostolic succession, where now you are um, going to be powered by the Holy Spirit if there is a council called and you attend it. Uh, your participation is, uh, along with all of the other bishops, guided by the Holy Spirit to lead to the true teaching of the apostles and to defend what's been handed down. So yes, it's directly tied to ordination. You, In the traditional view with bishops, you can't have one without the other. Nice. Are, are there any limitations on how many people you can lay hands on? How many you can ordain? You know, I, I, I just, I know that there's like definitely a, a doubling effect here as, you know, more bishops, you know, ordain more uh, people into the priesthood. And then we have a, an extended, you know, uh, group here. But there, is there any sort of limitation on what it takes to ordain uh, someone into your branch of the success, successive line of, you know, Peter, I guess you would trace back to all the way? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Roman Catholics definitely would um, <laughs> go back to Peter. And that, that would be their identifier. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later. That would be their way of seeing what is the true line of apostolic succession. But no, I don't think I don't think that there is a limit. I don't I haven't read at least in the early church of there being a limit of how many priests and bishops um, bishops can ordain. And so I think uh, pretty much all Christian traditions ordain, um, well, one, based off of a sense of calling in an individual and an affirmation of calling by that individual's community, um, but also just as need arises. You know you need a bishop if you don't have one. Or, or if you have a bishop, or if there's Christianity to a new area, you're going to send a bishop there uh, to plant a church. Um, or if a community is outgrown or grown so much that one bishop just cannot see over all of the churches in the area, maybe there'll be a new diocese formed or something. So it, it's a, it's a inner workings of all of that, internal calling, external affirmation, and just the needs of the church uh, being met as far as what what they need to be done and how many people are in an area. But no, I don't think that there's a limit. Okay. Well, that's cool. And then I guess the other aspect of this, which I know that you've mentioned to me before, is that there is a, uh, there is a way that apostolic succession is tied to the sacraments. I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit. Yes, absolutely. So 
up until now, <laughs> we have talked about uh, the role of apostolic succession for preserving truth, and we see some sort of sacramental power there um, to believe that the bishops actually are being led by the Holy Spirit to preserve the uh, complete, unfiltered uh, truth, or unadulterated truth. But yeah, uh, part of apostolic succession, aside from just preserving the teaching, is um, the idea of actually being an ordained priest and all of the bells and whistles that come with that. So this is now definitely more for traditional Christian groups. So I know like Roman Catholics, all the Orthodox branches, Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans, some Lutherans up in Sweden um, believe that when you get ordained, when you have the hands laid on you and, and you are ordained as a priest in the church, then um, you actually now have an ability that just normal everyday people don't have. You have an ability to administer the sacraments. So, namely, this is really tied to communion. Uh, that's the big one. Uh, a normal person, at least according to this traditional view, who's not ordained, does not have the ability to consecrate bread and wine to become the body and blood of Christ. So... Yeah, when you are ordained as a priest and in line with apostolic succession, you're actually given these tools now where you can consecrate the the bread and the wine, the host and the wine to become the body and blood of Christ. Um, and you can now um, absolve. So if uh, one, one of the seven sacraments for, for those in that tradition is uh, confession and absolution. So now you also have the ability through your ordained uh through your ordain, ordination into uh, apostolic succession of the church, now you can absolve people of their sins, uh, just like Christ gave the apostles the ability to do. Um, you're not forgiving them of their sins. Only God can do that, but you're absolving them. Uh, they can confess to you, and you are being used as an instrument there uh, to affirm them in their forgiveness. Uh, and th there's a little bit more there, but I think for now it's just most important to keep it to... Uh, communion the eucharist but yeah yeah you actually have abilities when you become ordained and you're in that apostolic succession line uh to perform things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to gotcha so that that kind of um expands the definition of the power of apostolic succession that the holy spirit is in you both as um the faith that you are able to share and impart on others but also through your ability to perform the sacraments as well. That makes sense. Yes. Um, so yeah, so that, I feel like that's a good outline um, overall of how apostolic succession works and what the kind of uses of it are and how it has helped maintain kind of this unity of the church uh, through the ecumenical councils we've discussed. But now I think we need to ask how does the church begin to split up and how does that uh, play out with apostolic succession? Because we know again that the Rome line is very important for this. Um, and just how exactly uh, would you describe the uh, kind of role of apostolic succession in the upcoming schisms that we'll be discussing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that is the million dollar question. Um, of course, an idea like this, an un unbroken line of apostolic succession that preserves truth, 
uh, the true teachings of the apostles is a lot easier when you have an unbroken, undivided church, right? <laughs> um, so what happens when you have multiple different groups who have legitimate historical lines of succession to the apostles disagreeing with each other, breaking communion with each other, um, anathematizing um, and excommunicating one another? How do you know which one is the true church? Um, and there are a lot of different ways of answering this. And I think the best way to go about that is to actually fast forward a little bit in church history and go to the time of the Reformation. Um, so, <clears throat> by the time of the Reformation, there were a lot of groups who had already split, right? We've talked a little bit about the Assyrian Church of the East, uh, the Oriental Orthodox Churches who will be splitting after the Fourth Council, which we haven't done that episode yet, but that's the next one, um, <clears throat> in the late 5th century, uh, which is six different churches that are still continuous today. Spoiler 1054, alert. 1054, the... Fr- <laughs> Sorry? Spoiler alert, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Well, we'll it's all right. <laughs> well, good on if you if you good, didn't good know you it happened already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, th- things weren't all neat and tidy for a thousand years, but but <laughs> anyway. And so in 1054, then we have even more schism, and this is a big one. The church basically splits in half, east and west, with the Eastern Orthodox Church, who rejects the primacy of the Pope, uh, says that this was never the teaching of the church that Rome developed this. And then Rome saying, no, that's not true. This is the teaching of Christ himself, and you are the ones that are changing. Um, So all of that happens. By the time we get to the Reformation, there's like, I don't know, um, at least five, four or five different major communions that are claiming uh, to be the one true church. Uh, And then (laughs) things really start to shake up because now some reformers are looking at this idea of succession altogether and uh, saying, well, I don't think you guys get this right at all. Uh, apostolic succession is about preserving the teaching, and you are, you are being superstitious with the way that you're tying this to a physical laying on of hands, and this wasn't the intention of the apostles. Uh, this was a development. And so that's kind of the, the uh, ecclesiological stew that we have <laughs> presented to <laughs> us in the 16th century at the time of the Reformation. So... I think it would probably be helpful if I went through and, and we just talked about uh, some of the distinctions that came out of that when these traditions were really forced to define what exactly they mean by apostolic succession. Um, so let's start with Rome. How does that sound? <laughs> that sounds great. You know, get the different variations in because we, we've discussed kind of the basis of it and we, we understand kind of what ways it's being used. Now we can talk about yeah. the different ways the concept can be interpreted today. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> it's an idea that you have to stick with. I mean, even the, even the Baptists would stick with this, but uh, it's a teaching that we kind of see in Scripture and very early in the church. We've got like Clement of Rome in the late first century, um, Ignatius talking about this in the second century. And uh, I mean, it's really we see this idea of a succession of the teaching and bishops. So you got to do something with it. Uh, But now we have different definitions. So here comes Rome. And Rome has a unique view of apostolic succession um, that is fair in some ways and unfair in other ways. Um, Well, I feel bad for saying that, but (laughs) it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a nuanced view. 
So that Rome has a very uh, hardline physical view of apostolic succession. And so for them, it becomes two-tiered. Uh, for Rome, if you were ordained a priest uh, or a bishop and you're in that line, apostolic succession, um, it doesn't matter what you teach. You can be the biggest heretic in the world. Um, I believe that you can even uh, be an ap apostate Christian. Uh, but as, if you had those hands laid on you, you, there is nothing that can be done to strip your apostolic succession away from you. So even a rogue bishop who's been excommunicated by the church uh, does have the ability to ordain. And so for Rome, they look at these traditions and, and you know, from Rome's perspective, they are the one true holy Catholic and apostolic church. Every other church is a false church. So what do they say then? Well, yes, you have apostolic succession. Yes, the Eastern Orthodox have apostolic succession. Um, yes, Luther was a validly ordained priest. All of that is true. Uh, but what you have in spirit and the physical uh, aspect of it, you lack in the spiritual aspect of it. So, yes, you are a priest. You can um, perform the sacraments. You can do all of that stuff. For the most part, there are some limitations, but uh, you can consecrate the Eucharist. Um, but you're not holding to the true faith once delivered. So you, uh, you basically have a tainted, uh, <laughs> uh, a tainted version of apostolic succession. So yes, you're in the line of apostolic succession as far as the physical laying of hands goes, but you, uh, have gone rogue, you are a heretic and you are no longer performing your duty to preserve the teaching. So they kind of have this two-tiered uh, way of looking at it. Even down to the Eastern Orthodox, who they'd consider heretics, um, they have this weird liminal view of the Orthodox Church in a lot of ways, where they're like, better than everyone else, but still not the true church. Um, and for that reason, again, they're holding on to the physical succession, and there's nothing Rome can do about that. The Pope can't snap his fingers and say, you're not a priest anymore. Uh, but they're not holding on to the spiritual part of succession. That is very interesting. Um, I, I think that that, like, yeah. <laughs> not, not only does that uh, perspective also just resonate, I think, with other uh, Roman Catholic ideas about the sacraments, but the continued, like, physicality of, uh, of ordination, kind of, like, that remains true, and, and it has nothing to do with the person who has been ordained <laughs> is I feel right. like, I feel like that, like you said, there is some really fair qualities to that perspective. Um, and then kind of the idea of like the hollowness of it afterwards, that the, the spiritual part is removed upon leaving the uh, true church um, is the re really the one way that they can remove that without kind of denying the, process of ordination that they have already performed right <laughs> that makes that yeah. makes kind of sense as a, a solution to how, how to deal with that or explain the the outcome which i know that this isn't really you know as substantiated with you know an example in the bible of an apostate like a, a rogue uh bishop who you know defied paul and was still you know a priest like i don't think that there's an example of that yeah <laughs> So it, it, it right. is one of those things where like this is a, you know, this is a perspective that had to be developed after uh, the epistles and after like the initial church fathers uh, to express 
what the outcome should be when you have someone who is ordained, who is a part of the church, who is, you know, trusted with this authority with apostolic succession, and then uh, kind of moves away from that continued line of teaching uh, in a way that yeah. can't really be described like physically <laughs> um, right. when it's a very physical like practice to, to ordain people. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why you see um, during the Reformation, for instance, uh, you notice Catholics, uh, if they believe that you're in a heretical church but have a valid line of succession, and you join the Catholic Church, they don't reordain you. Uh, they would like vest you, I think is the term that they would use. And so uh, we see this not just with Eastern Orthodox, but at the time of the Reformation, when the Church of England was going through its whole thing, after King Henry and King Edward died and Bloody Mary took over and made the Anglican Church Catholic again, uh, there was not a mass reordination of, of priests who were ordained uh, during the time when England was um, Protestant, separated from Rome, that that uh, period, that 10, 15 year period, there was just, a, okay, you were a priest in the in a wrong church and now you're in the right church. Uh, they have reordination now, but that's for different reasons, uh, I would argue. But uh, yeah, so the Catholics, yeah, they have this twofold system. Um, yes, there's the physical, can't do anything about that, but the spiritual part has to be there too. And for them, it's easy. How do you know? You look to the Pope. Uh, if you are in communion with the Pope, then you are a uh, part of the true church and you are in the, the good, healthy, um, <laughs> unaltered line of apostolic succession. The Eastern Orthodox, they have a different view, uh, a little bit less of a physical view. So for the Orthodox, like, yeah, the, the physical part is definitely part of it. And you want to be uh, have hands laid on you that were hands laid on a bishop all the way back to the apostles. That physical line is there. But for them, it's not merely physical. It's not a both and. It is both physical and spiritual. And so the traditional view of the Orthodox Church is that uh, basically if you become a heretic and you leave the Orthodox Church, then you lose your apostolic succession. Um, if you're not Orthodox, you, you don't have valid sacraments. That doesn't continue. Now, there are some Orthodox today that look to the Roman Catholic Church and affirm their sacraments, but traditionally, this is just not the institutional teaching. Uh, because the Bishop of Rome is a heretic, because the Roman Catholic Church is heretical, according to the Orthodox, they don't have valid sacraments. They don't have a, the valid Eucharist. They're just eating bread and wine. Um, and the only way that they can remedy that is if they rejoin uh, communion with the Orthodox Church. Interesting. Okay. So, moving away from the physical aspect and moving towards more of a very distinct cutoff, uh, it sounds like. Uh, does that mean that there's in any way a tie of the sacraments to kind of like the Orthodox Church itself or its... Uh, um, its current headship? Is that sort of like related to it? I think so. I think the best way to put it is just it's it's based on the communion, not, not bread and wine communion, but physical communion. Um, <clears throat> the sacraments are where Christ church is and Christ church is only and fully in the Orthodox church, according to them. And so that's where the sacraments are. 
And so it doesn't matter uh, what, what happened to you at your ordination. If you're not in communion with the Orthodox Church, you don't have valid sacraments because the sacraments are only found in the church. This is interesting. Well, I'm starting to see that there's like a, a fun logic puzzle that is getting created by this, which would be like someone who's ordained in, in the Roman like Catholic Church and then leaves the Roman Catholic Church for the Orthodox Church, but then leaves the Orthodox Church and has... <laughs> <laughs> like multiple <laughs> multiple uh, layers to what their apostolic succession is at that point and has various uh, rules on whether or not people recognize the sacraments they they uh, perform. Speaking of which, actually, if I yeah. was a Catholic priest um, who joined the, like a Roman Catholic priest who joined the Orthodox Church, would I have to be reordinated? Reordained. Reordained. No, you wouldn't. So that that is that is one thing that is interesting, and I, I I wish I had read more in preparation for this, but this was a pop up bonus episode for us. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, you you get uh, vested, and I hope I'm using that term correctly. If you're a Catholic priest and you join the Orthodox Church, you do not get reordained, uh, but you get vested, and at that time, I believe that's when you get all the all the goods, all the powers um, to perform the sacraments. Okay. Well, first of all, sorry for not letting you read enough before this episode. I know short, short notice, oh. um, but it, it, oh, that is all right. <laughs> this has already been really informative, and I think this is exciting now because I have never known um, any of this stuff about the Orthodox Church regarding apostolic succession. So this is really new. Um, I'm really interested in finding out now. Now that we talked about kind of the two uh, great. Uh, branches i'd say uh at right <laughs> over in uh europe uh we are getting to i think uh the next great expansion which are going to be the reformers um and the protestants uh so i'd be interested in hearing how exactly they view apostolic succession because i i was kind of shocked you mentioned like lutherans uh recognize apostolic succession it's never something that came up during my uh <laughs> Uh, my my Lutheran uh, uh, catechism uh, exploration. I never yeah. never really kind of encountered that, and uh, uh, I'm really intrigued to hear more about exactly how the reformers uh, explained apostolic succession. Yeah. So what I will say <clears throat> is uh, the Lutheran tie to apostolic succession is very small, and it's not directly tied to Martin Luther himself. Um, I'd say the core reformers, uh, Luther and Calvin and, and Zwingli um, and the Puritans, they, um, they did not really buy into this physical succession at all. Um, so it's a, the Lutherans that believe in apostolic succession are in Sweden. Uh, they're Scandinavian <laughs> Lutherans, and they've just ne they never rejected it. They rejected the Pope, but they did not reject the physical institution of the church and the necessity of that unbroken line. So you can find them, but yeah, you're not going to find them in America. Uh, <laughs> or if you are, it's somewhere. Um, so let's start. I'll start with the Reformers, and then I'll end with the Anglicans, because as always, they have to have a weird view of everything. Um, uh, another middle way. Classic. So the Reformers... The Reformers did reject this physical succession, um, but what they didn't reject is that core idea of the teaching being passed down from generation to generation. And they didn't reject the idea of Catholicity 
If you remember uh, back our episode, for those of you listening, thank you, our bad quality episode, our first one on uh, <laughs> the um, self-authentication of scripture, the, the Protestants, the magisterial Protestants, which just mean those core groups that were part of the Reformation, um, Lutherans, Anglicans, Presbyterians, maybe Baptists, depending on who you ask, um, they believed in the Catholic Church in the sense of the Holy Spirit works through Christians uh, to make truth evident, uh, important truth that needs to be defined. Stuff like the Trinity, uh, the canon of Scripture, the deity of Christ, all of that stuff. And so they do believe that this teaching is being protected and passed down, but it's in a much more invisible church hand-guiding thing than an institutional physical succession of bishops with uh, priests. And so that's uh, that's kind of the way that they saw it. That's probably as far as I would want to go into. It's not that bishops are necessary. I mean, really, all the most of the major reformed groups rejected uh, even a distinction between bishop or priest, uh, much less that the bishop had this ability that no one else had to protect and preserve the truth. So that's kind of the innovation, some would call it, and then for the reformers, they'd say that this is just the uh, resuscitation of the teaching <laughs> of the apostles um, to not have as um, ritualistic a view of the pre preservation of teaching. So let me see if I can pull this quote up here from Ligonier, which is uh, the go-to resource for uh, <laughs> reformed thinking, the magisterial Protestant thinking. Um, they say, Rome claims that its teachings are true because it possesses the apostolic succession of office, wherein its bishops follow one after another from the apostles. Furthermore, the apostles promised apostolic succession the office of the bishop to guarantee truth. So that's the Roman claim. On the other hand, Protestants say that we are right because we have the apostolic succession of teaching, not of office. It's the apostles' teachings that guarantee the truth, not the apostolic office. The apostles never taught the apostolic succession of offices. They did, however, teach the apostolic succession of truth, which was to be preserved in the scriptures for us always. So we believe in apostolic succession, not one of office, but one of truth. Interesting. Okay, so now we talked about Roman Catholic and Orthodox and how their handling of apostolic succession today is mainly focused on how exactly to handle the schisms <coughs> in the church that didn't exist during, you know, biblical times, during the examples we have of the actual apostles and of the early church fathers. There wasn't a really an explanation of what to do when someone, you know, who had uh, become a bishop, a priest, left the church. But now in these situations, we're, we're the Protestants, we're dealing with more of a different interpretation of the scripture and how Paul is teaching his successors that it's not really about the physical laying on of hands by Paul ordaining them, but instead it is about Paul teaching them, sending these letters, explaining exactly what the truth is, how to proceed as a church, and how that is the same way that they choose to view apostolic succession today. So a very different perspective on kind of the basis for it, uh, instead of just the application within the church. So I'm, I'm intrigued what your thoughts are on this, 
now, Andrew, that we have talked about the Protestant like view, the post performers, but I would love to know about the Anglican perspective of this. Uh, now that you are <coughs> indeed uh, going to eventually someday, I'm sure, uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully you getting to be there when it happens, but get ordained <laughs> within the Anglican Church of North America. Um, it would be really interesting to hear like kind of what your perspective is on this. What does it mean to you? Yeah, so the Anglican view is uh, obviously my, my preferred view <laughs> of apostolic succession. And uh, I really appreciate the thought that goes into it. A lot of times it's easy to just kind of joke and disregard the Anglican church uh, tradition as, you know, just King Henry wanting his divorce. And I, I, I'm not defending him. I, that, <laughs> that definitely is a, a stain on the history, and, and that's true. We will have but, an episode on that eventually. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. But what's, what's not uh, often talked about when, when just joking and overlooking the Church of England is just the, the amount of thought that these, that these people, the, the Eng- I don't even know if you'd call them reformers, but the thinkers in the early Anglican Church uh, were doing, a lot of the work. And so for them, you know, the Anglican Communion, uh, they broke from Rome with the Act of Supremacy. And unlike the Lutherans who were, you know, uh, citing sola scriptura, perspicuity of scripture, which just means that it's clear, anyone can understand it. Um, unlike Calvin who uh, and all of uh, his followers and the Puritans who were very focused on, yes, the authority of scripture and the sovereignty of God guiding the church. Um, Anglicans broke and said, well, there is still a supreme head of our church. It's just not the Pope. <laughs> it is It is the monarch of England. And so right off the bat, we have, okay, wait, this is this doesn't look very Protestant, but it's happening during the Reformation. Um, and their, their view of apostolic succession uh, reflected that. So they did not ditch it. Uh, there was not an outright rejection of apostolic succession. Uh, the Church of England very much saw themselves as the Catholic Church in England, both before and after they broke communion with the Pope. And so, right off the bat, their view is very reflective of the Roman Catholic view, which makes sense because that's where they came from. Um, They said, well, yes, apostolic succession is physical. Uh, That is important. If you lay hands on someone, um, then they are ordained. And uh, even if they leave uh, the church or they are a part of a different communion, they're still ordained. And this is where, right up to now, they're very similar with Rome. But the distinction comes in where they say, well, yes, there is one true church, and the Protestants are right in the sense that uh, if you are a Christian, you're a part of that invisible church. But there is also still an institutional church. And you recognize that church, one, if they're preaching the true word, the gospel of Christ, uh, for the salvation of souls, and two, if they're ad- properly administering the sacraments. So the Church of England, um, unlike Rome, says, look, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, even the Oriental Orthodox churches, you're all true churches, a part of the one true holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, yes, it would be nice if we were united together, but our disunity over these issues uh, does not negate the fact that you are a legitimate church, that we are all part of the one true church, that we all have valid bishops, uh, and that we all have valid sacraments. So there's a little bit more leniency in the Anglican communion to say, 
we don't have to call all of each other heretics and false churches. Um, if you are sticking to the basics of the truth, um, and they would say primarily, you know, the, those first seven councils that are universally agreed on, for the most part, uh, if we're united in these things, if we're united in these Christological distinctions, um, and you have bishops, then you're a valid church if you're preaching the word and administering the sacraments. Excellent. So if, if an Anglican priest then leaves the church, they are still viewed as within the apostolic succession line, even uh, as long as they maintain that they are, you know, preaching the unadulterated word and uh, administering the sacraments. Like that remains that they are, they are a part of the apostolic succession. Uh, yes and no. So yeah, they still have that traditional Catholic view that if once ordained, always ordained. Um, but you know, something is going awry if you've, uh, become an apostate or you are teaching a different, uh, truth. So your ordination is not taken away from you, uh, but it does still cause issues just like it does in the Roman Catholic world. Now where things get fishy, um, is it depends on where that priest is going. So if an Anglican priest joins, uh, let's say, like a non-denominational church that doesn't believe in real presence, doesn't really believe the sacraments are anything but symbols, um, well, they might be preaching the word, at least for the most part, as far as the gospel is concerned. But are they truly administering the sacraments if they're part of a tradition that rejects the validity of them? Uh, prob probably not. So I don't know that we would say you'd lose your apostolic succession, but uh, there would be a hope for reform in your thinking. Okay. All right. So then the way to get, you know, the Thanos gauntlet of apostolic succession is to be ordained by an ex-Roman Catholic priest in the Anglican church and then switch to the Orthodox church, be vested there and you will have apostolic succession recognized in three churches. Uh, yes, you um, yeah, you would. You you would. Uh, that's the ultimate Pascal's wager, right? Now. <laughs> uh, I, I like I like the combination. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, back to the subject at hand, though. Let's let's talk about today's implications uh, to kind of finish out our our episode here. Uh, what is the impact of apostolic succession now on, on the rest of the world? We talked about kind of these uh, three traditions and the importance, um, but for the rest of the world, for Protestants, like how is this impacting, you know, the general like Christian uh, take on, you know, what it means to be a priest or to be a bishop? Yeah, um, it, it does have big implications today. Um, most Protestants, uh, really don't have any regard for the physical succession. Um, you know, they don't really believe in bishops or at least that authority that was handed to, uh, them. They, they kind of reject that. And, uh, they still look to the councils though, right? Like we've been talking about and say, well, the Holy Spirit was working over these councils and they still contain the truth. And uh, we know that it contains the truth because it reflects uh, what Scripture teaches about who Jesus is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the implications, at least for the general idea, it still affects all of Christianity, that this teaching is being passed down, and it's our job as the church from generation to generation to preserve and protect that. 
Uh, for the other traditions, it's a lot more tied to bishops. And so for like Roman Catholics, for example, uh, they're, they're going through a bit of a time right now. Uh, and a lot, a lot of Catholics aren't very excited with the Pope and, and some stuff that's going on. But for them, they're just relying on that promise uh, that they believe that, well, the Pope is the head of the church and we know that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so we just need to remain committed to this. And so there is a level of commitment for these higher traditions that we've just got to trust, trust in the Episcopate. We've got to trust in the bishop. Uh, if you're a Catholic, we've got to trust uh, in the Pope, in, in the office of the Pope, I should say, uh, that God's not going to abandon his church and we can identify it through this apostolic succession and that truth will win and, and uh, be preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit through that uh, lineage. All right. Well, I think that that covers everything that we wanted to talk about today with apostolic succession. I think that I have a much better idea myself now of kind of what it means, especially uh, in all of the different major traditions we discussed. Um, but really, I'd, I'd love to hear if you had any final words for us before we closed out, uh, just because, you know, I, this is this is important as something that like you also believe in personally and that you will be participating in. Um, I, I'm glad to hear that it's uh, something that you take very seriously and view as a, a means of kind of protecting uh, the teachings of Christ and that, you know, as Christians, really the apostolic succession exists for that reason and for the, the hope of unity that kind of, that promotes uh, is based on uh, that, you know, continuous idea of faith being passed down from one person to another all the way back to the immediate followers of Christ during his time here on earth. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to hear all those things from you, Andrew. So I just wanted to see if you had any, any final words uh, for our listeners. Um, I think I would just leave it at uh, just read, read the New Testament, read Paul's letters and pray for church unity. Um, if you sincerely pray for Christ to lead you in the truth and in the fullness of the church, I believe he will do that. Maybe that's a cop-out that's easy for me to say as an Anglican because I believe that the fullness of the faith is found in a lot of places. But uh, just remain committed to the word, the inerrancy of it, um, and uh, have some trust in, in the church fathers. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate your time today. And I appreciate you coming back so, so soon after uh, wedding plans and everything. Getting to have you back so soon to record has been great. Oh, absolutely. I love doing it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find more resources to satisfy your curiosity, go to Miriosity.com and read more about the topics we discussed today. If you are a Miriosity supporter or have rated the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, we thank you for helping us to produce this show. In this episode, we featured Andrew Bass. This podcast is produced by Miriosity. Music by St. Surya. 